The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! at home, welcome. We have returned once again to the Third Men Podcast. I am but your noble co-host, Paul Kaminsky. And I am but your blind co-host, <laughs> James Kaminsky. Blind uh, to the topic, at least the information in the topic that we are about to receive, because... But James, Vija needs the information. <laughs> so this is our Jack White History Podcast, The Third Men Thanks for coming back. We appreciate it. And we talk about Jack White music and history, and we get into some tangential acts. And in this episode, James, this is a very, oh, this is a very special episode. Oh, it's a very, very special episode. James, you're playing some sort of what it looks like to be a air, air guitar. See, this is, this is not blues. It's a banjo. Um, yeah. But I'm going to, I'm going to sh- Throw this banjo away, because I'm going to actually start playing some blues music. Okay. Um, James, uh, would you like to tell the people why this is a very special episode of the Third Men podcast in blues song form? You have to sing it to the people as though it was a blues song, and I'll, I'll help you out here. This is an episode of the Third Men podcast. And today we're talking about some guys who sang the blues, but mainly just two. It's the end of the song. I'm gonna go home. I'm drinking a drink to escape this song. 
That wasn't quite what I was hoping for, uh, but it never is. Uh, the, 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 I honestly forget even what you asked me to do or sing about. <laughs> to tell the people why this is a very special episode of the podcast. Um, this topic is one that I didn't just come up with out of thin air, you know. Today we're we're doing a topic that I had requested of you, Paul. Thanks to episode fifteen, would you fight for my love? In that episode, the winner of the contest that we set forth for ourselves was to come up with a topic and give it to the opponent to research, thus letting the uh, victor relish in not having to edit a podcast for a week. Yes, and <laughs> to, to not have to do all of the legwork. And so, James, your choice for me was to get, delve into Jack White's influences, specifically in the Delta, the Delta Blues influences. James, let me tell you, I am very happy you chose this topic for me because I knew virtually nothing about this prior to the recording of this episode. In fact, I really only knew kind of the stuff everybody knew, you know, the what Jack's favorite song was, you know, the that, that kind of stuff, the Blind Willie McTell, the covers, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But boy, researching this episode really opened my eyes to a lot of stuff. And so, uh, you know, I think really I won in the end. I mainly stuck to the research of bluesman and legend, Robert Johnson. Oh. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we've and, mentioned him before on several episodes and on several occasions. Uh, but say, before we do any of that, I really, I smell something. It's kind of, uh, I know what it doesn't smell like, but you know what it does smell like, James? It, oh, I think it's astounding fact. The most astounding fact, the most astounding fact is the knowledge. I'll leave 80% of that in. Uh, James, I think I smell a fact is the portion of the show where we find out a little bit more about something we had discussed in a prior episode. Indeed. So we go forth and we smell facts that either you guys bring to us or even we search for ourselves. Uh, this week, I fell into a pizza hole, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yes. In episode 19, our Pokey Le Farge, uh, spectac- yeah, spectacular, uh, we discussed a, a man named Juice. Is that right, James? Juice. That is correct. Um, yes. Juice, if uh, you don't, if you hadn't listened, uh, was the owner of a pizza place in Illinois. I didn't really go much into it, other than Juice was a big fan of blues music and played uh, blues records to Pokey Lafarge, uh, which were some of his most notable uh, times of being influenced by the blues. I didn't know much else about Mr. Juice, if I may be so bold. Uh, <laughs> So he was like a friend of Pokey's, right? He was a... Yeah, he's sort of a friend and a mentor to all, it seems. I went and looked up where Mr. Juice resides, or where his restaurant resides. It turns out he worked for Jake's Pizza, which is a, a small number of pizza chains in Illinois. He worked at specifically Jake's Pizza in Normal, Illinois. Uh, <laughs> yes, on which is amazing in and of itself. <laughs> right, in North Street. So how Midwest can you get where it's just 
normal Illinois. It's perfect. It's very pokey. <laughs> Unfortunately, it closed in 2006, but it doesn't stop the good people of Yelp from looking up Jake's Pizza and and sharing some great memories. Here's one from Brian S. in Chicago, Illinois. I worked at this Jake's for about a year while in college, and I have to say, I had some good times here. I met my girlfriend here, and we are still together seven years later. Ron, Juice, and Joe. You see this? What's up? Hope you're doing well. The food was delicious and the lunch was unbeatable. The music and the drawings of blues and R&B legends were really what gave this place character. Sad to see that Jake's is no longer open. R.I.P. Original Normal Jake's. You'll be missed by many. It's got a few reviews. It's not chock full of them, but these people of Normal Illinois, they miss their Jake's. But apparently, if you'd like to go to the old location, uh, you could go to 202 West North Street, Normal Illinois. Um, Wow. So... eh. Everybody, make sure you find Juice on social media and find him via Jake's Pizzeria Avenues and reach out to him and demand he come on the show and tell us all about his relationship with Bucket of Hash. (laughs) I'm sure he has much to say and much to teach us in the ways of Juice. Yes, and that has been a rather pulpy fact. When I reflect on that fact... James, that brings us to our topic this week. We are back in the Delta, the Mississippi Delta, and we are going to be talking about Robert Johnson. Now, this is what I would like to be really the first part in a continuing series spotlighting Jack White's many musical influences. You know, there's a lot to kind of go through. Jack was influenced by a lot of different types of musicians, I think Mm -hmm. it would be fair to say. Oh, yeah. You know, the Detroit Rockers, the Stooges, that sure. kind of ilk, your traditional classic rock influences, your Beatles, your Led Zeppelins, your Rolling Stones, that kind of thing. Your folk influences, your Bob Dylans, your Neil Youngs. Yeah, which are definitely there. Your early late 80s, early 90s punk scene influences like Flat Duo Jets. But really, the one that I think he talks about the most, and the one that I think is most prevalent, arguably the most prevalent in his music, is the uh, is the Delta uh, mm-hmm. Delta blues artists, and that includes people like Blind Willie McTell, Howlin' Wolf, Blind Willie Johnson, those kinds of people. Sunhouse, uh, Sunhouse. But the one I really started with here was the one that really drew me in the most with his story because it's kind of spectacular, and that's Robert Johnson. I think Robert Johnson's really great to start with because he's really the best at every single thing altogether. I mean, it's a guitar playing, slide guitar, and singing and songwriting all together. I think as a package, he seems to be really great at everything. Because if you start with Robert Johnson, I think you can find your way, leading your way to other things, you know, because he had followed Sunhouse around and learned from Sunhouse, and Sunhouse had uh, played with Willie Brown and Charlie Patton. That whole family that was coming out of that same area, you know, if you just start with that, it's like starting, you know, Nowadays, with a certain rock band, you might say, like, if you like Nirvana, it'll lead you to liking the Pixies or the Melvins or something. I think it's it's good to start with sort of Robert Johnson because he'll lead you to people like Charlie Patton. And, and so uh, Robert Johnson here, we'll we'll do a little, we'll we'll break this up in a little bit of parts. We'll do like some background, we'll do some like key tracks and stuff, and then we'll we'll kind of circle back and talk about Jack's influence. So uh, to start here, we'll do a little background. Ooh, background. Back, 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 back. Round, 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 round. (laughs) 
the Delta Blues in general, it, we're going to say that a lot. It's named after the Mississippi Delta. It's a music that many say was sort of born out of the fields, as it were, like sort of these, these slave era of slave spirituals and singing in church, that sort of laborious activity in the American South. That's where it started, and the blues was kind of born from that. Right. And uh, really, like, the guitar as it became associated with this kind of music was really because bluesmen tended to be traveling most of the time, which is why when we were talking about Pokey during that episode, I was like, oh, yeah, of course this guy hit the friggin' rails and went out traveling and playing yeah. on street corners because that's what these guys all did. Probably out of necessity, too, because this is, you know, this stuff is coming in the, the Great Depression uh, era, uh, at least coming to prominence. So they're looking for work. They're telling tales of hardship and woe because times are tough and this music is a good way to get that pain out there and into the ether and be kind of like a, a little catharsis yes that's by the way that's a great point we should paint the the time frame picture here we're talking people who are born turn of the century people who are coming to prominence in sort of the the 20s through the so the 40s that kind of window we're looking at here so really at least 15 to 20 years prior to like Elvis Presley, if we're going to use Elvis as a benchmark, like that's the, the time frame we're looking at. So the record player is coming to prominence itself, you know, the ability mm-hmm. to hear music in one's home for the first time uh, mm-hmm. is, is starting to become more commonplace. You get this surge of technology and you also get this holdover from what came before. And so you can't take a piano on a train. So what do these guys cling to? They cling to I mean, musicians. you can. <laughs> Let's be clear. If you, you know, piece by piece, you could take it yeah. and assemble it onto a train. Now, it depends how fast the train is going. If it's standing still, it seems very possible you could take this piano on a train. Now, if it's moving, if yeah. you're a, a jumper, as we yeah. like to call them in the biz, it's a little more tricky. But if you have the right kind of trebuchet, we, yeah. could, we could line it up just right. Right, get that piano. I mean, yeah. obviously it, these guys aren't aren't going to be getting some grand pianos in there. But like a Casio, can we get a Casio yeah. in there? Well, it depends on how fast you want to go. Now, if you got them fires burning in there hotter than the hills of damnation, yeah, I could say you get her up ninety. I feel like Doc Brown would make a piano into a time machine. That's what I'm but you'd have to play a certain sequence. Oh, he would have geez. to play the notes. He'd have to do like a crescendo in like up to ninety miles an hour, though. Like yeah. he's got to play that fast. Sure, and and it's playing back in time by Huey Lewis that fast that it has to go incrementally <laughs> faster until you go back in time. Go back in time. Um, where the f- was I? Oh yeah. <laughs> It's like, do I help me boost piano? It's on a, I'm trying to get it on a moving train. Swank? Swank? Don't, don't play dead. I can see your breathing. No, that's not a piano. Swank! So they, they cling to instruments like the guitar, like the harmonica... These things that are portable instruments. A big, huge stand-up bass, are you going to be able to take that on a train? Probably not. That's reserved for more of Now, the... Paul, I think... <laughs> if Dominic Davis wants to take a stand-up bass on a train, he can. It's got to be stuff you can carry. So you have that... St- uh, we'll get into sort of some of the more interesting instruments they took with them, because believe me, that's a rag and bone. Mm. But you also have the blues being perceived as sort of a disreputable 
business. So if you wanted to play it, you know, you had to kind of build a mystique around yourself. It wasn't really a a, a socially acceptable job like being, I don't know, a um, being in construction or working a farm or something like that. It was it was something where you had to kind of build a character, build a persona, and take that persona on the road, which you can see Jack aping with mm-hmm. hit what he did later on, building this persona, building this reputation, and having that precede him on the road, because that was really a hallmark of the blues musicians, which especially Robert Johnson, which we will again get to in a moment. All right. As a musician, you didn't tend to typically earn much money, unless you were playing places that hadn't heard you before. That also helps explain why they were going sort of town to town. Well, so... <laughs> So I listened to a lot of quotes from a lot of different bluesmen when I was listening when I was uh, doing this research, and so I don't actually remember which guy said it, but it really stuck out to me. I was watching this documentary about Robert Johnson, uh, which is great. It's on Amazon Prime, and Danny Glover hosts it, and it's like oh, Danny man. Glover in prime Lethal Weapon mode um, from the late '80s, and he's so excited. I'm too old for this. But he says it with it, you could feel his diaphragm actually vibrating when he says it. <laughs> um, but anyway, one of these guys went, the music was very attractive, even to people who didn't like the face that was doing the music. So that helped assuage some of the racism mm-hmm. that these that these African American gentlemen tended to be gentlemen would face on the road. So even if they didn't like black people, they liked the music. And so they wound up using that as sort of a universal language and allowing themselves to earn a living that way. Right. Which I thought was interesting, especially in just like post Jim Crow South or, you know, mid mid Jim Crow South. Again, this is three decades before Martin Luther King. Yeah. Uh, highly segregated communities is where these guys are traveling and playing. Even when they go to the North, like they're still facing that stuff. I mean, they're still getting treated differently. Yeah. Getting into Robert Johnson specifically here. He was born Robert Leroy Johnson on May 8th, 1911 in Hazelhurst, Mississippi. Uh, Yeah, he was the grandson of slaves, and his family was chased out of Hazelhurst by a lynch mob. Uh. So he wound up in Memphis with his dad for a while, and so he kind of got exposure to some music out there, and, you know, you kind of got a lot of what they call hill hill music, like, or, or really folksy kind of music, the kind that maybe a traveling uh, mandolin troupe might play in the... Right. <laughs> Perhaps a troubadour named yeah. Georgia. <laughs> right, right, right. So he's absorbing a lot of different kinds of music. He lived with his dad, and then he moved back to Mississippi at eight years old, where he attended school. He was a good student in school, but he was very preoccupied with music and with the mystique of the different blues musicians that would play in the town that he lived in, which he sort of aspired to. Uh, so James, that, you know, these different kind of instruments they played here. Right. You know, you had real homemade instruments and, you know, you might find different things to rattle together while you were playing them. Perhaps you some know, like some logs. Uh, a, like a wash tire. An oh, old a wash tire, tub. a wash yeah, tub. You put a good. hole in the wash tub. You might even, if you found some like animal bones, you might oh, yeah, use so those. You can, to you can play. take some animal bones and you can you bang can them against trash can. You know, you strum it on a sweet street light, and then and then you might even wind up with again. You might wind up with with not careful with a little bit of a ragged bone. Very good. It's a ragged bone. A plus. 
Paul, uh, Rag and Bone <laughs> is the segment of the show in which we find weird tidbits, fun knowledge, little bits of joy and curiosity that normally we would not be able to give a home, but we take them in and we say, you little rags and bones are going to be ours now. You are our rags and bones. Yes. And we give them a home, and we project these rags and bones onto you, the listener. And normally we don't do it quite so early in the episode when we're still not quite all warmed up yet, but uh, (laughs) so be it. So this rag and bone comes from something that Robert Johnson used to play, and I'd never heard of this thing before. It's crazy. It's called a jaw harp. Come again? It's called a jaw harp. And when I went to go look up what this thing was, it's yarp. It's also called the Jews harp. Oh, oh no. And I was like, oh, that sounds super racist. And it's also referred to as a mouth harp, an Ozark harp, a trump, or a juice harp. Oh, old, old Mr. Juice from the pizza shop. Old Mr. Juice from the pizza shop probably used this harp. It's a lamolophone instrument which is a category of plucked idiophones, and it consists of a metal or bamboo tongue or reed attached to a frame. Uh-huh. And let's let's listen to a, what this what this Ozark harp sounds like a little so you can hear it's kind of got that twangy sort of sound james let me let me actually look up this harp what's it called ozark harp it's called a jaw harp or a jews harp i'm just gonna type jaw harp because that sounds way better yeah. Oh yeah. Bang! 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 In the kitchen. Oh yeah, he's just—he's just in a modern kitchen, just twanging away. <laughs> Probably gonna break my internet. Oh, but I don't care. Oh, wait. Click here to click here to watch this hilarious remix of Jaw Harp Boogie. <laughs> well, you could bring that on a train, couldn't you? Oh uh, man, I'm, I clicked the remix button, Paul. <laughs> DJ urinate, I can see, and it's this guy, and it's just remixed. It's great. Oh. Well, James, so the the jaw harp is obviously a hilarious instrument here. It looks like an arrowhead almost, uh, and you you catch a catch a hook on the twanger when you stick it in your mouth, and you mustn't Ooh. bite too hard. Um, that's, that's a mouthful. That's ball. in the instructional video of how to play a jar. <laughs> it's kind of like modified whistling with like harmonica-ish elements, sort of. And you get the rhythm by breathing a certain way. It's real weird. Uh, I've listened to some jaw harp blues. Okay. Uh, 
Anyway, you were on the twanger last I checked. This rag and bone broke Skype, and uh, on that note, it's been all of a pretty, a pretty little rag. Well, a pretty little rags and bones. All bones. So, James. Yeah. This next little bit here is kind of really key to his legend, but it was very close to being a rag and bone before I realized, like, it's part of his whole deal. So, mm-hmm. Robert Johnson, uh, you know, we talked about him in school. He's playing all these different instruments. Evidently, he was a terrible guitar player for a very long time. And he seemingly learned very, very quickly, eerily quickly, suspiciously quickly, Ah, how to play oh, the guitar man. and do it very well, you see. The Lovin' Brothers would have you believe that he sold his soul to Satan. Well, the entire South would have you believe that, James, because the rumor oh, that God. spread immediately was that Robert Johnson went down to the crossroads and sold his soul to the devil to get guitar skills and to play guitar as, like, the best of them. It's like, you know the song Devil Went Down to Georgia? Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's that, but it's like people really believed it. I heard a lot of people say that uh, he sold himself to the devil, went to the crossroads and all that. Great. (laughs) So he built this legend around himself and let people believe it because it was gaining notoriety. It was gaining him notoriety and it allowed him to make more money traveling from town to town because the legend of the guy that sold his soul to the devil to play the guitar preceded him wherever he went. I mean, God bless him for being able to leverage that. It went so far as, like, when he died, a memorial of him reads, Robert Johnson stands at the crossroads of American music. Much as a popular folk legend has it, he once stood at the Mississippi crossroads and sold his soul to the devil in exchange for guitar-playing prowess. Again, he seemed to like the rumor and basically told journalists it was true when asked... (laughs) <laughs> which is which is a total dick move, but it's kind of awesome. Oh, yeah. I mean, either that or it's true. Cue X-Files music. <laughs> <laughs> the truth is out there. I want to believe, Paul. Yeah. The more likely explanation is he was studying the playing technique of Sunhouse, who lived in his proximity. So you mean, like, actually learning it? Paul, you're, you're telling me this wasn't some yes. sort of diabolical deity teaching him how to play a human instrument uh, like some sort of human playing an instrument. You're, you're telling me that he learned it, Paul. You're telling me that he learned how to play the guitar. Yes. I don't believe it. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm having none of this. As unlikely as it may be. Sunhouse was also quoted as saying, quote, he'd walk in to me and Willie Brown playing and say, you want to hear what I've been playing? Wow. Um, He also studied uh, the playing of a musician, Isaiah Ike Zimmerman. Um, 
And really, that's the likeliest explanation for how he got so good. But this legend that he sold his soul to the devil propelled him to to some degree of fame and, in essence, kind of made him what you could consider to be the first rock star. Hmm. He played mostly juke joints, street corners, and Saturday night dances. Now, what what context is a juke joint? Because I know of juke boxes. Would that be similar to that? Uh, I found a lot on Saturday night dances. They were typically at people's houses where they sold whiskey and chitlins to everybody and they just kind of cut loose. A juke joint is a vernacular term for an informal establishment featuring music, dancing, gambling, and drinking, primarily operated by African-American people in the southeast United States. The term juke is uh, believed to derive from the Gula word jug or jug, meaning rowdy or disorderly. So juke joint is like uh, you go and cut loose. So it sounds a lot like these Saturday dances that they're talking about. Yeah, all right. Juke joints sound great. Uh, I got it. I got a handle on them now, much like a handle on a jug. The, the people who saw Robert Johnson play said he played the guitar like a piano, and that's what set him apart. He had long, thin fingers that allowed him to play chords that others couldn't, and could listen to the radio and talk to you at the same time and learn how to play the song at the end of the conversation as if he knew it, like he learned it uh, as the first song he ever learned on guitar. So apparently he had this great memory and real instinct for picking out songs and learning how to play them, uh, in addition to this unique way of playing. Apparently he was a dancer. He would uh, he would get up and dance a bunch. He loved the Kalamazoo and the Stella guitars, which, is the, which mm. are the kind that he played. We're still talking about a young man here. Before a lot of the traveling bluesman stuff was popping up, he had gotten married and he had moved to the Mississippi Delta where unexpectedly, obviously, his wife died in childbirth along with the kid. Oof. Yeah, and so, like, up to this point, he was going to try and make it by making an honest living by working some land and, and, and farming a bit. But after his wife and his son died, he really obviously fell into a depression and became a traveling musician where he wandered essentially for the rest of his life. in the south but he ventured as far north actually as chicago new york and even canada um oh wow that's yeah. pretty north that's uh, under great white northern lights you might say he was notorious for his predilection for whiskey and his predilection for women and he was a uh, young man in his 20s traveling mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. Drink, drinking heavily and playing a lot of rowdy juke joints so you could see that being a recipe for a lot of promiscuity, shall we say, coming from Mr. Johnson. Right. Promiscuous Johnson. He had little commercial success in his lifetime, 
really, because he didn't have time for it. Uh, he, he kept moving on, uh, and he was said to hypnotize his audience with his haunting singing. Paul's been hypnotized. Yeah. His biographer, uh, Peter Goralnik, later called him uh, well-mannered but soft-spoken, and he was indecipherable when he spoke, evidently. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, and he, he drank a bunch. Most of the stories about Robert Johnson are about just the raging alcohol-fueled parties and shenanigans he got into, as, as well as all of the different um, women's beds he had crawled into as well. Oof. So now we're going to get into a little bit of the records this guy actually put out. So we're going to go into some of the recordings, James. Record, 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 record. Cord, 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 cord. <laughs> so he, he sought out a producer. Uh, uh, the guy's name was H.C. Spear in the uh, in the 1930s, uh, the early 1930s. And uh, Spear had also worked with Sunhouse and some others, and obviously he had idolized Sunhouse. This guy had arranged several recordings with him, which would be really the only recorded account we have of Robert Johnson to this day. There's really not much that was recorded, maybe a couple dozen songs at most mm -hmm. and you can get them all they're all commercially available now but um so anyway he recorded at this place called the gunter hotel in san antonio texas in 1936 the the guy recording reportedly told robert to get a good night's sleep before the recording in the morning johnson was like a little nervous and stuff because it was just one of his first times recording and being in any kind of semblance of a studio but johnson mm -hmm. got jumped by the police that night and was arrested for vagrancy. Oh, my God. Yes. When he was bailed out, he was given 45 cents breakfast money and left alone. Johnson was trying to get a prostitute, and she required 50 cents, so he called the producer back and asked for the extra nickel. Wowzers. <laughs> um, oh, boy. Uh, some of the, of the other blues musicians who had recorded during that time referred to it as, quote, they'd get you in there and record every song you knew. So it was less of like, hey, let's make an album more like, what do you know? Let's put it on tape. <laughs> they recorded directly to disc. And Johnson, his technique of recording was interesting because he would only reportedly record while facing the wall, which was cited by many as evidence of his pact with the devil. Like, he didn't want anybody to see his devilish magic fingers or whatever, but really was... Well, that, well now, wait a minute. That makes no sense because he's playing in front of audiences, no? Uh, it was the pact with the devil, James. Okay, get over it. <laughs> Damn devil. Beelzebub had a special wall put aside for him. You may have this guitar-playing prowess, but there's a catch, you see. Oh, the, there's a poor connection in FaceTime. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I'm, I'm getting... I'm really digging this devil, James. Good. I don't care. Good, because... Because there's a catch, you see, Mr. Johnson. Is that really your name? It's funny. And now... I just want you to know that if you're ever in a recording studio, you're going to have to face the wall. <laughs> I only caught the tail end of that, and I don't care. It was the most amazing thing I ever heard. Um, actually, the thing... So, this facing the wall thing is actually a recording technique um, that he was using called, quote, corner loading. And what it does is it helps provide an echo, which makes it sound like more than one guitar is playing. 
mm-hmm. and it turned into this sort of trademark style that he would use and other people in the future would use as well it was something about that instant echo which would especially when you're recording recording directly to disc and you don't have the luxury of overdubbing or anything like that right. if you're playing against the wall and getting that instant echo the sound is bigger it's reverb basically that's what he's getting at it hmm. So basically, he's putting a filter on it in today's terms, you know. But of course, everyone... Uh, I prefer Newport, Paul. The Newport filter. Don Law was the guy that was sort of scheduling these things, and so he scheduled another session in Dallas. And it's funny, they had to record on the weekend to reduce the sound of traffic noise, and they had to keep all the windows shut, and it was a really hot weekend in Dallas, Texas. And so when you hear those records of Robert Johnson singing, picture a 90 degree ultra humid day in a closed room with no air circulation so the sweat is just dripping out of every pore as jack might say i got a kind hearted woman anything that's worth for me sweating their asses off in there which actually is interesting because that gives you kind of more of an appreciation for the for the music in a way in some weird sort of way a couple key tracks that he recorded in this time the terraplane blues this is one of the two recordings johnson would be alive to hear released It was his biggest hit, really, and it was recorded in that San Antonio session, and it was released on something called the Vocalion label, and it sold about 5,000 copies, which was a pretty respectable showing for records at that time. I'm sure distribution wasn't what it is today, so... Yeah, not at all. Um, it, It did play on jukeboxes and was a modest regional hit. They mixed it right where they made it, uh, is what they what they were talking about in this documentary. They said, we mixed it right there on one knob. You didn't really have any, like, stuff you could do to filter the sound. Except you had, like, one knob, you could sort of raise and lower and stuff. So, hmm. weird. Uh, it was written after a terraplane car, which was reportedly a car at the time that could reportedly, quote, drive itself. Which is obviously crazy. Right. right. Works of fiction, Paul. <laughs> cars, self-driving cars. Yeah. A hundred years later, we're sort of working on it still. But yeah. <laughs> um, so that's another Jack connection. Because Jack, one of Jack's first songs that he recorded was uh, Big Three Killed My Baby, which is all about cars. So that's <laughs> kind of funny that the way that worked out. There's a uh, another bigger hit of his last fair deal gone down. There's there's Hellhound on my trail, which is really great song. Um, let's play a little bit of Hellhound on my trail. I got to keep moving. I got to keep moving. Blue for 
See, that one is kind of like was helping reinforce the devil myth. It's all about mm. how a hellhound is tracking him down and stuff. And, you know, I'm sure there's undertones of struggles, I'll say, of slavery and that sort of stuff in the South at the time as well. Yeah. As similar or akin to spirituals yes the crossroad blues which we'll get into that sort of a little bit later with other people he influenced besides jack and then me and the devil blues so the crossroad blues and me and the devil blues also helping reinforce this whole devil theme well i mean some of those songs that were recorded back then were just so dark and evil i can't believe that people even recorded them and thought this would be great to put on a record i mean what were they thinking at the time like maybe he's cutting you know i asked her for water she gave me gasoline so creepy i can't believe people were like okay cut that's a take okay next song you know what were they thinking or robert johnson you know me and the devil blues you know it must have been very odd love to have been there to know what was happening in the room and then um really uh, again which we will which we will talk about much more later the stop breaking down blues which jack white famously covered and in which robert johnson you know fun fact you've been hearing him in nearly every episode of this podcast in the <laughs> stop breaking down segment yeah he's the the voice at the very he's the second version of the song stop breaking down that we play in our interstitial music for our stop breaking down segment yes indeed he only recorded 29 songs in his lifetime not very many jack white recorded more songs than that in his first two or three albums you know it's it, there's not a whole lot of material there but the material we do have is really really cool to hear and and getting to know it actually wound up being a real thrill because it's raw you know it's so raw and you can mm-hmm. hear why it was so appealing to so many people later in life uh, robert johnson sadly died on august 16th 1938 and he was the first member, at least the first member I could find of the 27 Club. He died at age 27. Oh, man. Yes. And the 27 Club famously populated, it's, it's known for claiming musicians. Uh, Janis Joplin died at 27. Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse. All these musicians, young virtuosos, cut short at a very young age. 27 is not old at all. Paul, I'm suddenly afraid. I've just realized... I'm 27. Yeah, James, don't be a member of the 27 Club. <laughs> I got a few months. I got some months left. I can do this. Yeah. I can do this. Um, but how he died is actually really... It does nothing more than feed his legend here. So he died under under mysterious but likely violent circumstances. He was, as I said, notorious for his addiction to women and whiskey. And he was slated to appear at a concert in Carnegie Hall and didn't turn up. The guy who had booked him for this show inquired as to what happened to him and started asking around. And reportedly, he was playing in a town and he was handed a glass of poisoned whiskey by a man whose wife, Robert Johnson, had been courting. So he's at a bar, he's handed this glass of poisoned whiskey... It was a bar called the Three Forks, and 
he took a swig of the whiskey and was requesting a blues song to hear. He was handed his guitar, began playing, and then collapsed. He suffered for three days before he finally died. Again, the poisoning was never officially substantiated. There was a quote from the documentary, a friend of his who had said his fame killed him. His, his reputation and the kind of lifestyle he was living really was the thing that did him in, in the end. Huh. Funnily enough, the guy that was trying to book him for Carnegie Hall that couldn't find him wound up replacing him on the bill with Big Bill Brunzi. Wow. Which is neat. And actually broke it to the world at that show that Robert Johnson was dead. Wow. Uh, his, his tombstone reads, Resting in the Blues which is awesome. Yeah. Where's he buried at? Do you know? Greenwood, on, Greenwood, Mississippi. It's an official stop on the Mississippi Blues Trail. He was buried in Greenwood, Mississippi. There's a gravesite that was erected there outside of the Little Zion Missionary Baptist Church on Money Road, north of Greenwood. Wow, that's something I want to see. Pretty cool. And his death was never investigated and no murder was ever charged. Uh, he didn't really receive a lot of fame in his lifetime, we were talking about, but in 1961, so flash forward a couple of decades, past the age of Elvis, who was basically mimicking a lot of the style of these bluesmen and speeding it up and creating rock and roll a- alongside the likes of Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Carl Perkins and Buddy Holly, uh, you know, these guys are inventing rock and roll in the 50s based on the back of this, uh, on this blues music. Right, the Everly Brothers, to quote your ruddles. So you skip to 1961, an album called King of the Delta Blues Singers was issued and it introduced him to a new generation of musicians. It was named later number five in the 50 most influential albums of all time by The Guardian in 2006. He was also inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in their very first induction ceremony in 1986, which I thought was cool. Wow. Yeah, no, he deserves it. Somebody new to the podcast might be asking themselves, what the hell does this have to do with Jack White? They don't really seem to be talking about him at all. Well, we... Seem to be rather wasting our time here in New Orleans, despite the expense. Still, pretty, isn't it? Well, Paul, let's get into that. Check, 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 check. White, 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 white. So just on the surface here, throughout the course of this show, I've been saying a lot of things which you might be saying to yourself, hey, that sounds an awful lot like something Jack White would enjoy or something Jack White would have done. There are some obvious examples here, but some of the bigger ones like Catch Hell Blues, without Robert Johnson, I don't think that song exists. It sounds just like a Robert Johnson tune. direct uh, Jack 
correlation here is obviously the Stop Breaking Down Blues, which we which we mentioned earlier, which Jack would later record for the very first White Stripes album, which he would sort of chop the blues off at the end and call Stop Breaking Down. That song was also famously recorded by the Rolling Stones, who were also really, really heavily into Robert Johnson and other blues artists like Howlin' Wolf and things like that. So it does make sense that Jack and Mick Jagger and Keith Richards would all have sort of similar heroes in that vein. The subject matter and the way they were treated, let alone the guitar playing, which is almost like bark, and the voice is so eerie and compelling. Every time I'm walking down the street, some pretty mama start breaking down with me, start breaking down. Jack LP cover of a of a Robert Johnson song. Okay. So this is via Gibson's website, the uh, the guitar manufacturer. Blues legend Robert Johnson recorded this song during his last recording session back in 1937. It's just a simple up-tempo blues number with nothing but Johnson's voice accompanied by his Gibson L1 acoustic. The song has since been covered numerous times, most notably by the Rolling Stones on their Exile on Main Street album. Jack and Meg White also recorded the song for their 1999 self-titled debut. The song takes on a completely different life compared to Johnson's soft blues number. Although the only instrument added is Meg's drums, the intensity is turned way up, as is the distortion on Jack's guitar, transforming the song to a garage rock track for a new millennium and making a whole new generation aware of robert johnson's existence in the process the song is awesome it's a standout amongst robert johnson's tracks and it's a standout honestly for me amongst jack white's music i I remembered responding to that song very much when i heard it for the first time not really knowing actually anything about the delta blues when i heard it for the very first time but it's it's a great song one of my favorite jack blues covers yeah so it's a we went over it already in our uh, first episode but really good cover really good song yeah there's a song called red hot that shares a lot of similarity with jack white songs the blind willie mctell's songs your southern can also sounds a lot like these kinds of songs that 
Robert Johnson was recording. I think there was a lot of mixing between the different blues musicians and the kind of songs they were doing. I think they were probably borrowing from each other and covering each other. But I thought the Gibson article was interesting because it mentions that the intensity has turned way up. Jack's taking the Delta blues musicians and taking a syringe filled with the Stooges and flat duo jets and just jamming it right in there and creating something wholly uniquely sounding because the energy is so up. Yeah, it's a little more aggressive, a little more, I don't want to say angsty, but there's definite late teenage to early 20s angst in his version. You know, it's it's aggressive. It's in your face. Yeah, more so than the other kind of musicians that cover it. The other musicians put, it's not quite as fast and intense as Jack's. There's a song called Walkin' Blues, that Robert Johnson recorded. Does that phrase yeah. sound familiar, James? It sure does. He uses that term in uh, I Think We're Gonna Be Friends. Yes. He says, brand new shoes, walking blues. And the song Walkin' Blues is all about Robert Johnson's brand new pair of shoes. Ah, that's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. I woke up this morning Year round for my shoes for Walkin' Blues was actually played at that Carnegie Hall performance in conjunction with the announcement that he died. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, that's how you make it to Carnegie Hall, Paul. You, you die. You record yourself and have them play that instead. <laughs> so there were some interesting quotes I found from The Guardian in conjunction with the, with the Jack influence here. So this was a Guardian article from 2013, and it was about Jack White and his affection for the Delta Blues. As Jack tells it, the enduring appeal is simple. As a songwriter, even if you're singing about other people or making up characters, it's still your job to be against the world and all that began in the 1920s and 30s with these blues singers. It was the first time in history that a single person had been recorded to tell whatever story they had to the world. Before that, you had to be in a German polka band with a tuba or a jazz orchestra, he said, honking with laughter. But suddenly anybody, they didn't even have to be good singers, could have their own voice, which is a great point. These people could tell their story to the world. The article went on to say, White is still in awe of the process by which events came together in America's deep south to create the blues. There was the Great Depression, the technology of recording music, and the fact that furniture makers had started making record players and needed something people could play on them. Another thing Jack has in common is furniture makers. Yeah, the similarities keep coming. So they started recording the poor black singer-songwriters that were emerging in the Mississippi Delta. Something magical just occurred to create a moment in history that changed the world, Jack said. There's something magical about those records, and much of it lies in the voices, partly because of the way they were recorded. There's eeriness and a humanity about them, which sounds unlike anything else. They sound like they couldn't have occurred for real. They don't sound like you could have listened to these songs being recorded. I can't imagine the white northern people in charge of record companies saying, Great job, Robert Johnson. Let's hear another one. (laughs) (laughs) There's your first number one. (laughs) Now, would you please stop looking at the wall 
I need to talk to your face, <laughs> Mr. Johnson. Mr. Johnson. Oh, he's been poisoned. It's a, it's a strange music. You can imagine them thinking, I don't understand this stuff or what they're saying. Why are we recording this? Jack argues for musicians nowadays. Uh, he says, it's important to go back and cleanse your palate. If you like punk rock now, there were people who did this with way more things against them than a suburban kid who goes to a guitar shop or someone buys him one and they start singing punk songs. There's beauty in that too, but to be black and southern in the 1920s and have no rights, that exemplifies struggle, which I think is a great point. Yeah. Totally. White, of course, no longer has to struggle, but deserves credit for using his success and fame to promote musicians that are far from household names. The beauty of Third Man Records is we're not in business to make money. Don't find that accurate at all. (laughs) It may be one point that was their mission. Uh, This is 2013. Okay, the the Third Man Rubik's Cube says something else, but (laughs) you know what? no, uh, No tea, no shade, as Paul likes to say business yeah there's nothing wrong with that they don't have to hide it i mean i think jack thinks of it a little bit more in like librarian terms like he's the steward for this kind of stuff so i think that's kind of what he means here but still like yeah Mm. you're trying to make money those vaults are 60 bucks so he says we're here to make things exist that we think are beautiful some people might go out and buy a ferrari or something but i would rather spend my time and energy in releasing these records if only a thousand people get something out of them it's still something that makes me and the people here feel excited because they know the power of this music nice so this is uh, via a slate interview in 2003 talking to jack again or talking about him rather the bluesman has always been cocky commanding but not altogether credible figure the blues may be steeped in suffering notably the poverty and racial oppression of the depression era south but the style's distinguishing attribute is swagger this confidence is so potent that it has sometimes been identified as supernatural and that was the bit about robert johnson selling a soul to the devil blah 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 Jack plays the guitar well, too, but he hasn't sold his soul to anyone. In an age when the charts are topped by heavily marketed corporate products, his white stripes haven't even signed to a major label. This is prior to... Prior to me, of course. The stripes have built a major league presence from sass, skill, and insistence of self-determination. Jack produces all the band's recordings, doesn't use session musicians, blah, 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 blah. Jack White is so self-assured that he, unlike most bluesmen, save Robert Johnson, can spend much of his time detailing his romantic inadequacies. Hypnotize borrows the melody of Secret Agent Man to confess his inability to mesmerize a woman. I want to be the boy to mourn my mother's heart despairs of winning mom's trust, lamenting that it feels like everything I say is a lie. <laughs> a couple more quotes here. Via the New York Times in 2012. This is Jack White during a larger piece about Jack and Third Man Records. It says, He pulled into the parking lot of United Record Pressing, the largest vinyl record plant in the country. United has been pressing records since 1949. The first White Stripe single was made here in 1998, and now Third Man was its third biggest customer. White walks the factory floor, pausing now and then. There were massive gray bins full of rainbow-colored vinyl pellets, like the flooring you'd see in an aquarium. Large extruders of melt and shape the raw vinyl into pucks, steel pressed, that employed 6,000 pounds of steam pressure to flatten the pucks into records. It's really a beautiful process, White said. At the labeling station, an employee handed him a pressing of an old Robert Johnson LP that was being re-released, and he weighed it in his hand. 
That's killer, he said. It's not as heavy as mine, though. I've got the real one. Ah, nice. So I guess he owns a lot of those real old uh, Robert Johnson records. I wonder, does he have the original original? Is that what he meant? Probably. I mean, I don't know. Possibly. Did he spend his money on the oldest note? Well, this has been rumor and speculation with James. I'm going to sit back in my corner and... (laughs) Listen to my voice some more. The last quote here, I'm just going to read it from Consequence of Sound in 2014. This is them reporting on a show he did in Paris on his Lazaretto tour, where he reportedly played not only uh, covers of Isis by Bob Dylan, etc., but he also played If I Had Possession Over Judgment Day, which is a Robert Johnson song. Fantabulous! So I'm just going to go through really a couple of the other key influences that Robert Johnson had on music. The Rolling Stones, Keith Richards was really into Robert Johnson. He was quoted as saying, You'd think you'd have a handle on the blues. Then you'd hear Johnson and think you'd have a long way to go yet. Hmm. The Rolling Stones recorded two Robert Johnson songs, uh, Love in Vain Blues, which they called Love in Vain, and uh, Stop Breaking Down Blues. Yeah. Led Zeppelin... Robert Plant and Jimmy Page were fans of Johnson's, and they wrote the song The Lemon Song, derivative of the tune Travelin' Riverside Blues by Robert Johnson. Really? That's cool. Yeah, so that line about squeezing the lemon till the juice runs down the leg, that's from that's Gross. from Travelin' Riverside Blues. Is it really? It says, now you can squeeze oh, my man. lemon till the juice runs down my leg. And uh, actually, I listened to this song yesterday, and... The way Johnson, like, Robert Plant, when he sings it, he just sort of, he sings it, but he's, I mean, as a kid anyway, listen to that, I, I didn't really get the su- the subtext until it was pointed out to me. Johnson, when he's singing it, we'll play a little bit of that here. He's like, hey, you get it? Now you can treat my lemon till the juice run down my, till the juice run down my leg. You know what I'm talking about. You can treat my lemon till Thank you. 
Johnson song is kind of a typical, like Led Zeppelin actually also recorded a traditional version of Travelin' Riverside Blues, which was um, unreleased until their sort of post-mortem album Coda in 1982. But there is actually a version of Led Zeppelin covering this song. It is a 12-bar blues structure. It's it's common in down-home blues of the era. And the length of each verse is a 13 and 4 half bars... Uh, or four and four, played on a single guitar, an open G with a slide. So you can see Jack often when he's playing these kind of blues songs on tour, he's playing with a slide as well. Robert Johnson, and that brings our topic to an end this week, James. Wow. Should we throw it to our third woman Let's this week? Let's throw it to our third woman for this week. Welcome to our third woman for this week, Callie Durga. Callie, you're on the show. How exciting. Hello. Um, I've really been digging the show so far, guys, so it's it's a ton of fun to be on it. Uh, thank you so much for all of your input and all of your corrections and all of your facts that you give us to smell. It's finally incredibly nice to meet you. Oh, you guys as well. I think we said on a, on a previous show, you're really our third person on the show anyway, but it's nice to have it official here, and uh, so thank you so much for joining us. And I guess in the chronology of events, thank you for joining us again, because you <laughs> will have been on last episode as well. So uh, once again, time is a flat circle, and Matthew McConaughey will save us all. We are creatures that should not exist by natural law. Hmm, that sounds god awful rush Callie we brought you here today we're going to talk a little bit we've been going through some Delta Blues history with Jack White really with a focus on Robert Johnson and you had mentioned to us over social media when we had spoke that you had done this deep dive into it and stuff how did you first sort of discover Delta Blues kind of stuff and get into it and specifically maybe how it relates to like Robert Johnson well it was through Jack the weekend that I had my Jack White epiphany, I was stuck at home uh, here on the East Coast during that blizzard back in 2010. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, yes. I remember it I, fondly. <laughs> yeah, I had just recently heard about the film It Might Get Loud, so I managed to pick up that up from the video store before uh, the blizzard hit, nice. and I spent four days watching It Might Get Loud and trolling YouTube for videos of Jack White <laughs> and the White Stripes and blues music and... Just watching that film and hearing him talk about the blues, it, you know, I, my idea of the blues leading up to that was Eric Clapton and the Blues Brothers, and he, you know, as he's done for a lot of other people, I'm sure, he opened up a whole new door and, and made me realize that there was a lot more to it, and it was a lot deeper. As I got into Jack's music, I made the decision to dive into blues at the same time. Robert Johnson wasn't one that I got into it first, but I've, you know, I have explored his music as well as a lot of the others that 
that are, are big in Jack's influences. Yeah, a lot of his early stuff is mostly, or his early covers of blue stuff tends to be Sunhouse, and there's a couple others that are scattered here and there. There was at one point when I decided to look into what these covers actually were and what songs he actually wrote yeah. and uh, downloaded all of these Delta Blues Deep South actual blues songs and legally 100 yeah. percent. and 13 13 year old james is sitting there in his parents house getting down with the blues i guess like jack white was doing at the time <laughs> i remember that james like we were i mean you weren't 13 but i remember us being in a bar and i think you had taken that dive before i and you put on like blind willie mctell and i was like mm-hmm. what the f- i, I put on bull weevil paul that cleared that bar out good see i knew bull weevil <laughs> James was far ahead of the curve with me on Jack stuff. We had always been fans together, but James really did a lot of those deep dives before I did. So, James, once again, you showed me the way there. And I showed everybody the way out of that bar. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, Callie, you mentioned Eric Clapton. Like, we've talked about a little bit on the show before. Yeah, you know, er the Eric Clapton's of the world, the Keith Richards, Mick Jagger's of the world. Those guys were kind of the ones up until Jack, and uh, to a lesser extent sort of Led Zeppelin, like kind of showing the mainstream, the blues a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so I really appreciate, I mean, the Stones did some stuff with like Howlin' Wolf and brought bringing him out into the open and stuff. But I, what I really loved about Jack was in It Might Get Loud, he put that stuff so much at the fore and really got into a lot of specifics and nitty gritty about what blues specifically in, influenced him and stuff. So I think he's done a lot, if not more, than those guys in, in terms of exposure to mass audience of that kind of music. I got a real kick early on in exploring both his music and the blues. I went into a used record store in Baltimore and was talking to the guy. Didn't say a word about Jack White, didn't say a word about Third Man Records. I was looking for blues records, and I was asking him what he had. And, and he starts telling me about how, oh, he can't keep Sun House and Book of White in stock anymore because all the kids are coming in because of Jack White. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's I had great. to laugh over that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that was the reason I was there, but he didn't even know it. <laughs> uh, wow. I mean, that's good, though. I'm glad that he was able to get that interest back. I mean, it, it's not like it wasn't there still, but it, I'm glad that it was. He definitely got me interested in it, and obviously you guys as well. So mm-hmm. I, I'm glad he was there to do that. Yeah. Oh, I am too. It's definitely one of the things that I'm most grateful to him for. Callie, do you have a favorite cover that Jack did of those Delta Blues folks? Off the top of my head, I know which one I would pick for that, but do you have a favorite? Um, well, it depends on whether you're talking about covers or where he's used one as inspiration. I think, ah. honestly, my favorite is, at least right now, is $3 Hat. Oh, okay. All right. I was going to say three women. That, oh, no. Okay. No, no. <laughs> which, that's a great one, but honestly, $3 Hat, I lost it a little bit the first time I heard that song because I recognized immediately it's from... Mississippi John Hurt's Staggoli Blues. And Jack took it almost word for word. I saw you mention that on Twitter. I had no idea. I yeah. just thought Jack was being a wacko. I had no clue. So that's, uh, I'm sorry, who did that song originally? Mississippi John Hurt did. Cool. A lot of people have done Staggoli Blues. Mm-hmm. Tons of people have done it over the years. Um, even back then, you know, everybody was doing their own version of Staggoli Blues. But the one that I could hear when I was listening to $3 Hat was Mississippi John Hurt's. There's a line told Stagger Lee, please don't take my life. I got two little babies and a darling loving wife. That bad man, oh cruel Stagger Lee. 
I care about you two little babes, darling, loving wife. You done stole my stuff and hat, I'm bound to take your life. That bad man, oh, cruel Stanley. Jack really did it almost word for word, but put like a modern day twist on it, his own little, you know, weird, almost psychological twist to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he added the little bit of, um, I think it's Frankie and Johnny at the very end. Yeah, which yes. other people I was I talked to when that song came out, that's what they picked on, mm. picked up on. Yeah. Was that Frankie and Johnny was lovers? Oh, how they could love! They sworn to be true to each other, true as the skies above. It was her man. Oh, she's doing her wrong. But he's doing you wrong Frankie went down to the hotel She didn't go down there for fun Under her long red kimono She carried a 44 gun Looking for the man That had done her wrong Johnny pulled off his Stetson hat Hollered, now baby don't shoot Frankie pressed her fang on the trigger and that gun will too. She killed her man Cause he done her wrong But uh, the body of the song is, is definitely Mississippi John Hurt's version of Stackley Blues. So that right now is is my favorite of, of Jack's covers. It, that's funny. That song is is kind of an anomaly on that album because it's the I would what is it the only time really Jack takes a lead vocal to any great degree yeah. on that record, if I'm recalling correctly. And yeah. so it always struck me as like, oh, okay, well this is kind of cut like a buffalo two, cut harder ish you know like it, it, it mm-hmm. struck me as a little bit of that but i was happy to get a jack vocal because like you what we were talking about before the call we're in this jack drought right now and dodge and burn was like our first relief from the jack drought and he only had one freaking lead vocal on that album. and boy did it split a lot of the dead weather people because dead weather fans aren't necessarily raconteurs or white stripes fans or even jack white solo fans sometimes so uh some of those people this was the first time that they're exposed to exactly how weird he can get, um, <laughs> which it's, it's out there. It's, it's definitely out there as far as his dead weather material. Yeah. 
It's no big baby, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I saw somebody posted a video at one point on Tumblr, I think it was, of him singing what they said was $3 hat at a show on the Lazaretto tour. But it sounded to me like he was singing Staggily Blues by Mississippi John Hurt. And I'm wondering if that's like when the idea for $3 hat came into its head. Mm. If he started working on it at that point and wanted to do something with it and maybe stuck it on Dodge and Burn just to get yeah. it out there possibly. Yeah. Right, right. Because they were chipping away at that album, right, over like a period of a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we haven't really talked about that one on the show much yet, but we had seen tracks being released by The Drop over the course of, I want to say, a year or two. Something like that, yeah. And that was their original intent, if I'm not mistaken, was to, to release that in a staggered way and then collect it later. But mm-hmm. neither here nor there. But yeah, I have a feeling we talked about a little bit in the Whorehound episode a lot of what the dead weather is is just this spur of the moment kind of uh, whatever's on the top of your head jamming and then refining. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wouldn't shock me if the cover happened to be top of mind and oh hey let's make this song out of it. You know? Yeah, especially because he tends to kind of meander into covers in the form of a jam during uh, shows. I remember he was every show I've seen him do. He usually inserts some kind of cover riff into his mm-hmm. other material at least once. Uh, yeah. during a show so it would not surprise me if that's part of it either e- either that was the inspiration or it was at top of mind because he had already started to write uh, that kind of song right james do you have a uh, a favorite delta blue style jack cover or inspired song it's got to be death letter Unf- like I, <laughs> I was gonna say unfortunately yeah. because i i feel like <laughs> it's just cliche because that's the one that a lot of people know but I, I really, really like that song, and the Grammy performance really sells it to me every time. Like, yeah. it's some of the best solo work he does. I got a letter this morning, I do, ring it red. Say, hurry, hurry, the gal, you love is dead. I got a letter this morning, I say, I you ring it red. that he's soloing on a blues song is already kind of blasphemous in a way but it's it's really it's uh it got me to buy the sunhouse record and it got me to really listen to sunhouse in a serious way which for me was tough to do because i was really into you know i'm a mccartney guy i like pop music so this kind of uh, roots music folk music was was hard to to hook me so I think that really right. was one of the, the song that did it. I agree, by the way. It took me a long time. Like, even with like a Neil Young, it took me like a long time to get into that. And Dylan, it, I had to really 
was a slow exposure, but Jack really helped with that stuff. Lord Send Me an Angel Down was really the thing that opened my eyes to the potential of that kind of music. I, I almost couple that one with Bull Weevil a little bit because like hearing him and Meg play those two songs live, there's so much energy and it's so clear that they love the material, that that love just comes right through the music and it really spoke to me. Good Lord, good Lord, send me an angel down. Can't buy you no angel, we'll buy you cheese and brown. That new way of loving, swear to God it must be best. Hardy Georgia women won't let Mr. Mac tell rest. Good Lord, good Lord, send me an angel down. Can't you spend on angels, you will spend on cheese and brown. Oh, this new way of loving, well, I swear to God, it must be best. Cause these Detroit women won't let Mr. Jack White rest. There was a crowd down the corner, all wonder why could it be. And one thing but the women just trying to get to me. One of them has Chemic Yellow. Oh, one of them Detroit Brown. But that Southwest dark skin was sure to turn my damper down. That's that's an interesting one, too, because Blind Wooly McTell used the lyrics to that song. He kind of mixed it up, and um, and Jack did a bit of that, too. I mean, um, there are some live versions of that where... There's a little bit of Three Women Blues thrown in with Lord Send Me an Angel, and, and it just uh, shows how he understands what they did back then. They would always kind of mix things up a little bit and switch lyrics around, and he's doing the same thing now, which is something that nobody else that I know of does. They won't let Mr. Jack White rest. One of my favorite <laughs> insertion of lines. It's, it was always good yeah. to hear at a show. I always love that. <laughs> They were traveling people, and they're all covering each other's music anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in the in the Delta uh, blues sort of era, when I say that, I mean you know Chicago and all that stuff. But they were really there was a lot of intermingling of songs going on. It seemed, yeah. and um, so yeah, it, it's it's cool to hear him doing that and carrying on that tradition. And it goes along with his desire to get down on vinyl and to perpetuate what he perceives as these lost audio art forms like we had talked about you know him wanting to capture auctioneering on 45 or the art mm-hmm. of auctioneering or what have you and that kind of thing so it it very much makes sense with him trying to preserve this sort of thing yeah totally definitely so Callie your southern can is mine <laughs> southern can belongs to me that song Tell us a little bit about that one, because that is, A, one of my favorite songs that he ever did, but it's also super belligerent. Yeah, it's it's one that I've always been really curious about, why he chose it. I've seen things on song lyric discussion sites mm-hmm. where mm. people have talked about, back in those days, a lot of the blues songwriters would write in euphemisms, where they would might be singing about how they're going to treat their woman, but they're actually singing about what they'd like to do to the landowner that they work for, or the the cop who beat them down or, or whatever. And I've seen a lot of debate about, you know, the original version of that song and discussions about the White Stripes covering it, whether people believe that about that song or not. Some people think it's just the way things were back then. You know, man would beat his woman if she misbehaved and, and vice versa. The woman would turn around and smack the man if he misbehaved. So it's, you know, it's kind of 
up for debate. It's definitely an odd choice for him to cover because I don't, I, I feel like the original song comes through where you could possibly get a double meaning from it. And with the White Stripes version of it, I don't know if it exactly translates that very well. Now look at him, mama, let me tell you this. If you want to get crooked, I'm going to give you my best. You might read from Revelation back to Genesee. You get crooked yourself and can't belong to me. Ain't no need you bringing no joy to me, cause your southern can't be mine. Might go uptown, have me rest and have me put in jail. So watch out, got money coming and go my bail. Soon as I get out, hit the ground. Your southern can't work two dollars a half a pound. Ain't no need you bringing no stuff to me, because your southern can't be mine. Baby, ashes to ashes, sand to sand. When I hit your mama, then you feel my hand. Give you a punch through that barbed wire fence. When I hit you, baby, I know I make no sense. But they used to bring you no job to me. The southern cat is mine, I know it. The southern cat belongs to me. When I look here, woman, don't get hot. Getting me a brick out of my backyard. But they used to bring you no job to me. The southern cat is mine, I'm talking about it. The southern cat belongs to me. Well, if I catch you, mama, down in the heart of town, I'm gonna grab me a brick and tell you, can on down. Ain't no use you bringing no job to me. Southern can is mine, I know it. Southern can belong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it just makes him sound like an asshole. Yeah. yeah, I've never gotten that from the White Stripes version. And I've always right. wondered, you know, if he was choosing it to show all the different sides of blues music, that sometimes it could be a little bit negative or whatever. What did Meg think about it? <laughs> sitting there singing along with it you know that's what makes it really weird she's sitting there singing along with it i feel like if she wasn't okay with it she wouldn't have sang it so there because <laughs> would she though well the she speaks like she up would. to jack for sure true when when something isn't quite what she wants you know jack says you know when they're recording that she definitely has a voice and she says it but it's not necessarily in the public eye so i don't know i'm not gonna assume that but i feel like jack would have confirmed with her are you cool with singing this or at least talked with her about the song first the song choice yeah i mean Obviously, all this is speculation. Yeah, rampant speculation, which we've been (laughs) good at lately. But I don't know. I feel like there was no discussion. I have to... I just... Based on the time period that they were recording it in and sort of the pre-ultra PC age that we're all living in now with with social media and people being very, very conscious of that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. uh, I I feel like, you know, it was just a song they knew. And it was just a song like any other, like Bullweevil or like anything else. And Meg probably liked the melody, you know? Again, I don't know. Um, (laughs) So... Who knows? This is a terrible grave we're digging for ourselves. <laughs> we're just going li- to keep digging and lay ourselves down. Yeah, don't worry. I'll edit all of this out. It's fine. <laughs> thank you, Kelly, so much for joining us on this episode. This has been a great discussion, and we can't thank you enough for the support on the show. Part of why we started this thing was to connect with other fans and to get to know the, the fan community, and that's certainly people like yourself, and getting to know you and Adrian and Kate and, and all the great people on our Facebook group has been so wonderful. You're a part of the fandom in a lot of different ways. Are there any like groups or anything like that you want to plug, or any shout-outs you want to give while you're here? Not particularly. I, I'm not as involved in different areas of the communities as I used to be. Mm. So, no, I, I want to keep plugging you guys. Oh, well, thank you. you guys, we appreciate you, that. 
You're my favorite thing these days. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Thank you. And and I will then plug the Thinking Persons Jack White group, which you introduced me to, which is a lovely fan community, and everyone should go and check that out. And I am certain that we are not telling anyone anything new here, but you should definitely check it out anyway. Oh, I'm glad you guys are enjoying it. We sure are. Yeah. Uh, so so thank you so much, Callie, and, uh, and we're going to get back to the show here. James, we learned a lot today. We sure did. We learned how it's a bad idea to play blues songs at a bar. Yes, we did. Uh, we we learned a lot about Johnsons. We learned that you can't get too excited on a Skype call because the internet will explode and force you to record the rest of your podcast over a phone call like an animal. Hey, you guys. It seems like you're having a little bit of trouble, so to speak. Uh, you know, for a little nominal fee, oh, oh. I might perhaps oh, tell, be able to... Tell, tell me uh, more. I might perhaps be able to give you the power of uh, the podcasting prowess. Oh, podcasting of, prowess? Of someone... Yes, you're, of your Mark Marins or your, your McElroy brothers. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so my soul—is that what you need for that? No, no, no. You guys just have to record while facing the corner. So you're saying if I record facing the wall, then um, I will right. have podcasting right. prowess. That's all it's going to take. Right. Right. That's that's it. Uh, that's all you got to do. Saying, I got to wonder. I have a couple questions. Actually, I have many questions for you. My first, my first question right. for you is: What is that? Uh, what is in it for you? Ah, uh, well, you see, there's not much in it to me other than, wa- other than watching you podcasting in a corner. Oh, I mean, okay. I've had Mark Marin on this uh, corner kick for days. That's why he's in his garage. He's so ashamed of recording in the corner. But So yeah. it's mainly, it's mainly uh, laughs? I mean, because laughs are worth something. Well, it, you know, that's that's the gist of it, but the other gist is that my buddy Fred down the road, he gets to come into your house and steal all your stuff while you're not looking because you're too busy looking at uh, a Follow-up question. You have a buddy named Grant who lives down the road? No, no, no. Fred. 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 I'm sorry. He's a good guy. Fred is... Fred. No, don't, you know, it's, don't worry about it. It's fine. Fred, I mean, he's a good guy. He's going to rob me, though. I have... Uh, first of all, that is a whole other line of questioning. My, my main question for you, James, is can I buy some death sticks? You, no, no, no. I, uh, I I don't sell those anymore, but uh, I just want to say that uh, he'll rob you blind. Thank you, James. Uh, this, this has been fun with Satan. <laughs> James, uh, blessedly, that is going to do us for this week. Uh, thank you all for listening, and we, we really appreciate it, as always. Uh, we have we have a couple thank yous, but first and foremost to our third woman for this week, Callie Durga. Callie, you've been an ever-present member of our podcast, really, since almost day one, and it's been such a pleasure having you on these past two episodes. You're lovely, and we'd love for you to come back and, and school us some more, because, boy, we could really use the help. Yes, thank you, Callie, so much for uh, being a guest and for pretty much helping us with every show that we've ever done. So thank you uh, again and for all that you do. 
And that leads us to some other shout-outs we're going to give here. Um, we, we divide these into two categories. We've kind of got our regulars, and we kind of got the some, some of the new people who have started interacting with us on social media. So we'll mm-hmm. go for our regulars first. Obviously, we covered Callie. Uh, Jeremy Riles, keeping us on the rails. Jeremy, thank you so much. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you to Adrian King. As always, you were former guest and always champion of our show, Adrian King. The queen, Adrian King. We love you, Adrian. The punk rock queen. Yes, indeed. Andre Lyman. Andre, thank you so much for all your support. It's really appreciated. Yes, thank you, Andre. And uh, Eileen Corsano, thank you for everything you do, Eileen. We see you there liking everything, so uh, we're happy to, to help. Yes, you've joined our cast of regulars. You get to win James doing a devil impersonation some more. That's right. Uh, Eileen, I'm sorry, and I won't ever do this impression again. Yeah. You're, uh, the, other, the, the next prize for our next regular will mean they have to look up Howlin' Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'd also like to send some shout-outs to some new people who've been interacting with us. Uh, Teresa Horn. Uh, thank you so much, Teresa. Yes. Thank you to at America Franco 18 I'm hoping you're talking about James Franco and not the <laughs> horrible dictator Franco. Uh, AF Franco uh, is the Twitter, is the uh, the name that pops up on Twitter. Thank you. Uh, you've been liking a lot of our stuff lately, so that's very much appreciated. Some Tumblr people, uh, A Corky on Tumblr, thank you for the follow. Very much appreciated. I'm hoping that they reblog everything Corky Romano has ever been mentioned it yes thank you to nicola meyer for everything you do nicola nicola and uh david poe thank you david very much appreciated and and there's so many more but we'll, we'll get to those in future episodes we'd also like to thank thank sam kubert and tom valent i think i think i called him sam <laughs> we'd like to thank sam kubert and tame valenti for the uh recording and production of our theme song <laughs> we're the third men uh, thank you guys so much. It's great. <laughs> thank you to Susanna Roundtree, who did our wonderful intro and outro of our program, making us sound professional for once. Yes. And everybody, I, I'm going to give this plug here. I said it on the last episode. Hey, listener questions. We are going to be doing some episodes with listener questions. We could really use your help. So reach out to us on um, social media. We're about to give you the, the stuff to, to use. But uh, over email, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, just tell us get, uh, give us some questions that can be about Jack White. They can be about the show. They can be really any listener questions you've had. Send them our way, and we'll uh, we'll do our best to answer all of them on the show. And thank you to everyone who's given them to us so far. Yes. So if you want to send some of those questions in, you can use our Facebook, which is facebook.com slash thirdmen. Yes. Um, you could go to Twitter and tweet at us at thirdmencast. And uh, if you'd like, you could use the hashtag thirdmencast. That's right. You can uh, go on Tumblr and... Tum- tumble a little bit yeah. with us. Tumble. We're at we're thirdmenpodcast.tumblr.com. Yep. Uh, you can go straight to the source, our blog, where we post the episodes that feed out into the podcatchers. Uh, that is thethirdmen.wordpress.com. That's got all our show notes and pictures and everything. Mm-hmm. If you really want to just get straight in touch with us, which is the most direct way, you could uh, summon the devil to give you our Gmail, which is thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Yes. Sorry. Thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Yes. Thank you, Devil James. Um, you can search us on YouTube. James does some pretty cool visualizers that uh, you can go check out there. Yes. R- render times take forever. You could rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, which would be 
very helpful for us. It gets some peepers on our show and gets some more people involved and interested, and that's what we want. We want more fan community we could talk and explore the wonderful world of Mr. Gillis himself. Yes, indeedy. Uh, we're also available not just on iTunes, but a few other places like Podomatic and Overcast. So... I think that's going to do us this week, James. And just thank you, everybody, again for all your support and for listening to the show. And until next week, I think I'm going to be looking for a home down in the Mississippi Delta. I'll be looking for a home. No. <laughs> I'll be looking for a corner. <laughs> well, we will, we will see you next week. Bye. For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at thirdmencast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. in my hands like this like a highest fire steam yes stein oh okay <laughs> i forgot about that i can't I'm gonna wait have to, to hear bleep so many things <laughs> <laughs> oh dear oh dear locations and to get it all out of the way now researching the johnson i took a long time with the johnson this episode is going to be really big. Uh, it's a long, long Johnson episode. Dick, dick, dick. Balls. Penis means Johnson. Well, you said Johnson means penis. Said Johnson. Einhorn is Finkel. Finkel is Einhorn. Horn is a man! <laughs> uh, but say. before we do any of that hard, hard Johnson work. <laughs> Paul, that was a really sloppy Johnson intro. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it wasn't going to be funny. Like, I was walking around the house uh, after doing this research being like, all right, we're just going to get all the dick jokes out of the way at the beginning. It's not going to be even funny. And then... Uh, it still is. <laughs> I, I, still, I still find the Johnson surprising. When, you're, when you least suspect it, it's well, it's, it's funny. When, when the Johnson pops up, you don't really know what to expect. Yeah. Just gotta suck it up, I guess. <laughs> I'll leave 80% of that in. Uh, James. I'll go a little more in depth if you want to do that. I yeah, can you can just vamp on juice for a little while. Hell yeah. I'll vamp on juice. Because I don't think we've got... Hey. The Jawhar broke Skype. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, I'm...
listen to some John Hart blues. Okay. Uh, anyway, you were on the twanger for last I checked. Yes. Stop. Stop streaming, James. Stop streaming. It's breaking the internet. Oh, the job hurt. Why did you have to go and break Skype? I hear you. I hear you. Are you there? Are you there, Paul? It's me, Robert Johnson. FaceTime froze so bad that I, uh, you froze, and then when it came back, you were talking to the wall, and I was like, what happened? <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey, I think that they're making stir-fry downstairs. Are they making stir-fry? Oh, oh it smells good. Or are you smelling a fat? <laughs> <laughs> We're exchanging no facts right now. Because um, I honestly, honest to God, couldn't tell. No, me neither. Sometimes it's it's worse than cold mountain. I think. Uh, so this is the last bit, James. When Robert is singing about squeezing the lemon to the juice runs down his leg, I assure you. That all he's doing is referring to his favorite Johnson. Um. <laughs> oh, Paul, this is this is possibly verging on maybe we should not include this. 